1: Sky in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode thirty-six spoiled rotten. This is a story that begins with the love and hard work of two people, Mary and Harry Pang. Together, they pursued their wildest American dreams. Mary was born and raised in Seattle. She was one of 10 children. She came from hardworking parents who had come to the United States from China to work on the railroads. Harry was a World War II Air Corps veteran who flew on D-Day in Normandy. Harry would receive a Distinguished Flying Cross, which is a medal awarded for heroism or extraordinary achievement in aerial flight. Mary and Harry would meet at the University of Washington and they would marry in 1945. They opened a little grocery store on Beacon Hill, a neighborhood in the southeast of Seattle. The couple poured their hearts into the fledgling business and it began to grow. And a decade into their marriage, they decided to adopt two children from China, a move that in 1955 probably saved the children's lives. The Communist Revolution culminated in the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. And by 1955, the political and social upheaval had continued to ramp up, so that when the Pangs adopted a little boy who was six months old, who they would name Martin, they knew they were probably saving his life. Martin was the fifth child in his family who were forced to make an impossible decision to put their baby boy up for adoption because they just couldn't afford another mouth to feed. The Pangs would also adopt a two-year-old little girl who they would name Marlis from a different family. A few years after Martin and Marlis were adopted, the country would be devastated by the Great Chinese Famine, which was caused by droughts and floods in critical farming areas. The famine was exacerbated by radical changes in agricultural regulations, which were imposed by the new communist regime. Roughly 36 million people would die from starvation between 1958 and 1962. But back in America, Harry and Mary Pang were thriving. They now had two children and their grocery store was booming, but they were always looking for new opportunities, so... When Mary's sister, Ruby Chow, said she had an idea for a new business, they were all ears. You see, by then, Ruby was already a proven commodity. She was a successful business owner. In 1948, she'd opened Ruby Chow's, the first Chinese restaurant outside of Seattle's Chinatown. And the place became legendary. A magnet for visiting celebrities and a place for the political and business elite to schmooze and hang out. And Ruby was considered a rising star with a talent for recognizing opportunities in business and relationships, like Bruce Lee, who actually worked at her restaurant. Here's Ruby Chow describing her first encounter with a young Bruce Lee after he visited Seattle's World's Fair in 1962. Bruce came up here, uh, came to Seattle to see the fair, and he liked it very much. Then he told me, He wasn't shy about it. He told me that he wanted to prove to his father that he could go to university without him. And would I let him stay with us? And he's a very smart young man, very talented one, and a very handsome young man, and very resourceful. Ruby had created this really successful restaurant with legendary cuisine and atmosphere. Her place had the it factor, but she wasn't the type of person to rest on her laurels. She had an epiphany. The timing was just about perfect to introduce Chinese food to American consumers, just as Swanson's had done in 1953 with the so-called TV dinner, available in grocery stores across the country. And that first year, Swanson's sold more than 10 million TV dinners. And the next year, the demand skyrocketed to 25 million. Remember, this was a time when TVs had become a must-have in home entertainment. The idea of sitting in front of your TV with a TV tray plopped in front of your recliner and enjoying a piping hot meal you just heated up in the oven without dirtying a dish was groundbreaking, and Ruby wanted a piece of that pie. Ruby shared her vision with her sister Mary and brother-in-law Harry, asking them to join her in the frozen food venture. They would use her commercial kitchen during the off hours to prepare, cook, and package the frozen food by hand. The business idea was visionary and successful from the start, but unfortunately the partnership between the sisters soured. It's unclear the source of the bad blood. Ruby would leave the frozen food business, and the sisters wouldn't speak for 30 years. Ruby Chow would go on to be a trailblazer in Seattle politics, She's credited with bridging the gap between Seattle's Chinese community and the city at large. She became the first Asian American member of the King County Council where she would serve three terms, becoming a well-respected and beloved leader. As for Mary and Harry Pang, they would continue to grow the business. And in 1963, they moved the business into a warehouse in Seattle's Chinatown. The building was built in 1908 and Mary Pang became the face of the business. By the 1980s, Yearly revenue had grown to more than a million dollars, which in today's standards would be the equivalent of $3.6 which allowed the Pangs to move their family to Mercer Island, which is an extremely affluent suburb of Seattle. They were living the American dream, but it had come at a steep price. The Pangs were consumed with work. To keep the business booming, they gave it everything they had. Both Mary and Harry worked seven days a week, And over the years, a sad dynamic had formed. A source close to the family would tell me that Martin was extremely favored from the moment he and Marlis were adopted. That Marlis was harshly disciplined by the parents, and as Martin grew, he made her life a living hell. Because when he was a kid, Martin was a spoiled, entitled brat who was described as having a superiority complex, and bullying appeared to make him feel better about himself. Marlis, who was timid, shy, became afraid of her younger brother. It's worth noting that when Marlis graduated from high school, she left home, walking out of the door and just heading for the freeway, where she hitched a ride with an older couple to San Francisco. Her parents had found out that Marlis had gone to California, but they never went searching for her. In fact, the Pangs wrote her into their will for $1 to ensure that she wouldn't be able to contest the will, when they died. The source would tell me that the name Marlis was not mentioned often in the family home, which was all fine by Martin. He'd gotten what he wanted, rid of Marlis. And later, after she'd gone, when Martin would speak of his sister, he would say, unpleasant, mean-spirited, and aggressive things. His comments painted a pretty clear picture that the only thing Marlis was to Martin was a threat to his parents' money, which he believed belonged to him. In high school, Martin gained a reputation for not just slacking off when it came to grades, but a kid who acted recklessly. He had also earned the nickname Pyro Pang because of the threats that he would make to burn down the homes or businesses of people that he believed had wronged him. After high school, Martin would attend college for a couple of years, but ultimately he would drop out. He worked at his parents' company. He loved acting intellectually superior to others. He would drive a leased Porsche through the family business. One neighbor would say, quote, I've been told by people who work down there that he liked the title and the salary, but not the work. But as a young man, Martin Pang loved playing Playboy. He whined and dined his paramours, all on his parents' dime, of course. But underneath the glitz and glamour, there was a really dark side to Martin's brand of charisma. And that evil seed inside of Martin began to grow. His adoptive parents continued to make every wish come true. But that love, that attention, that Martin can do no wrong devotion just wasn't enough. It would never be enough. And neither were his marriages. Between 1978 and 1989, Martin Payne got married four times. None of these relationships lasted longer than 19 months, and each were filled with rage and violence
0: violent man threatened to use fire against enemies. He's a bad dude, but all of his ex-wives, of which at that time he had four, were really, really afraid of him.
1: That's Duff Wilson, a former investigative reporter for the Seattle Times in the 1980s. You'll hear from him throughout the show, but for now, according to Duff, Martin Pang had a documented history of domestic violence. His first wife would be hospitalized for a broken back, nose, and eardrum after she alleged Martin had attacked her in 1979. Initially, she would press charges, but would retract them the night before trial out of fear. Martin allegedly killed her pets and threatened to burn her house down. The marriage would end in divorce. The charges against Martin were dropped. Martin's second marriage lasted seven months. It's alleged that he drained the woman's life savings of $5,000, backhanded her so hard he broke her jaw. And according to a police report, after the couple separated in 1983, Martin scaled the wall of her home using suction cup devices. And when he broke into her home, he beat her up. Martin's third wife, Risa, had a child with him. She was also close to the Pang family. She even worked at the family frozen food business. After Risa divorced Martin, she and their daughter went to live with his parents and continued working for the Pangs. Police records show that Martin threatened to kill Risa over the phone after the divorce, but Martin would remarry for a fourth time. Police records also reveal that Martin's fourth wife would report threats leveled against her by Martin, which included setting her home on fire. We'll be back after a quick break. Even though police documents reveal a clear pattern of terror and abuse toward his ex-wives, Martin was never really held to account for these allegations. In one case against an ex-wife, he was ordered by a judge to take classes in anger management, but that was the extent of the punishment. Between his failed relationships, Martin cooked up several business ventures that never panned out. Eventually, he would move to California to become an actor. He landed only one part as a first responder in a made-for-TV movie where he helped victims in the World Trade Center bombing. By 1994, Martin's acting career hadn't materialized. He was desperate. What was a narcissistic, spoiled rich kid who was now a middle-aged man supposed to do? The steady supply of little red envelopes, hundreds, it turns out, over the years, that his devoted mother would fill with folded-up wads of cash, those envelopes began to dry up. The once-successful family business that had fueled Martin's exploits for decades had fallen on hard times. Increased competition in the marketplace had taken its toll, and the once-booming frozen food business in Chinatown was slowing down. And so were Harry and Mary. Martin, the Pang's darling boy, could have rolled up his sleeves and instead of acting like a big shot, actually helped his aging parents turn the ship around and revive a business his parents had spent their lives building. But Martin Pang had other ideas. First, he tried to talk his parents into selling the warehouse, believing his parents would give him a large chunk of the proceeds. Why wouldn't he believe that? His parents had only ever showered him with anything and everything fancy clothes, fast cars, elaborate trips, boat and airplane rentals. His whole life he'd been a taker. But for once, his parents refused him, and that made him angry. That just didn't sit right. And what did Martin's high school chums call him? Pyro Pang? His parents, saying no, didn't sit right with Pyro Pang. All it would take was just one match. And by torching the warehouse, the insurance money would restore Martin to the lifestyle that he was accustomed to. If his parents weren't going to sell the warehouse, then he'd burn it to the ground for insurance money. We know this because Martin would confide his plan to an unlikely confidant, his ex-wife, the mother of his child who worked at the family business, Risa. Risa was forced to play a dangerous game with Martin. Remember, they had a daughter together, And even though they were divorced, she was still very much afraid of him. She knew only too well what he was capable of. And so she listened to Martin and his plan to burn down the warehouse of his family's business. And she hoped that it was just all talk. But by December 1994, Risa knew that Martin wasn't kidding around, especially after he makes a special trip to Washington from California to move his stuff that was stored in the basement of the warehouse out, leaving behind racing fuel from his past glory days back when he could afford to play the big shot race car driver martin would tell risa that the warehouse was going up in flames on friday december 16th or saturday december 17th after his parents left work martin had told this to risa on december 13th three days away from the supposed arson date even though she was terrified she knew that she had to do something So she called the insurance company and told them about Martin's scheme to torch the warehouse. The next day, agents from the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms interviewed Risa Pang. An undercover surveillance team was deployed to the warehouse. When December 16th went by and then the 17th passed without incident, they continued to stake out the warehouse night after night. Meantime, Risa would receive another call from her ex, Martin, asking her to set the building on fire for him. Risa declined. Clearly, Martin had no idea that she was working with authorities who were still surveilling the Pang warehouse. But just before Christmas, unbeknownst to Risa, a decision was made to call off the surveillance team. Now, she hadn't passed along Martin's request for her to burn down the building because she just assumed that the surveillance team was still in place. What she didn't know was that not only were they not watching the building, they weren't keeping tabs on Martin Pang.
0: She had called them like a week or two before the fire, described it exactly. They surveilled the warehouse for a while and then called it off. But that was just one, one mistake.
1: On January 5th, 1995, at around 6.30 p.m., Harry Pang would leave the building for the night. But the warehouse wasn't empty. The Pangs had sublet a part of the warehouse to musicians in a band. It's believed that the fire was set just a few minutes before 7 p.m., by 7.02, a member of the band called 911, one saying smoke was billowing inside of the warehouse, which was just located a few blocks from the Kingdom, the Seattle Seahawks Stadium back then. Within minutes, five engine companies were racing to the fire. At the time, high-level fire department officials had been read into the arson threats at the Pang warehouse by the ATF. But the fire companies responding did not know. The the boots-on-the-ground first responders also didn't have a building plan for the warehouse that was built in 1908, which meant they didn't know that it had a basement. That evening, the wind was calm in Seattle. It didn't take long before a column of smoke rose vertically above the Pang warehouse into the night sky like a beacon of doom. The old building was a tinderbox. By 7.20 that night, just 18 minutes after the 911 call, Firefighters were outside trying to contain the blaze from all angles of the building, and first responders were battling the blaze inside the warehouse on the first floor, totally unaware that their feet were not on solid ground. Since the command staff didn't have the building plans, they had no idea that the warehouse had a basement until it was too late. The fact is, the belly of the beast was raging below the origin of the fire. How could they know that fast-looking flames were a ticking time bomb as they consumed the supporting floor beam? And then the old building rumbled, a warning that the integrity of the building was compromised just before a section of the main floor dropped, plunging four firefighters 20 feet down into the 1400 degree inferno below. A split second after the rumble and then the collapse of a portion of the first floor, a lieutenant inside the building shouted a command over the radio. Get the hell out of the building! It was unclear what was going on inside the Pang warehouse, a building which had become engulfed in an impenetrable blanket of thick black smoke amidst the scorching flames. It had become a hell on earth. The fire had transformed into a five-alarm beast that was now raging out of control. More than 100 firefighters would be called to the scene as smoke could be seen from miles and miles away. Later, according to Fire Chief Claude Harris, seven firefighters were able to get out of the building alive after the collapse.
0: One of the lieutenants that perished on the fire had to concern of his crew and he told his crew to get the heck out of here and they bailed out through uh, two windows on the west side of the building. That's some of the heroics that uh, were exhibited at that fire last night.
1: The lieutenant, who had called for firefighters to get the hell out of the building, wouldn't be so lucky. At roll call, four firefighters remained unaccounted for. It would take three days to recover all four bodies of the firefighters who'd lost their lives battling the blaze inside the paying warehouse. Lieutenant Walter Kilgore, Firefighters James Brown and Randy Turlicker died of asphyxiation after their air tanks emptied. Lieutenant Greg Shoemaker lost his helmet and oxygen mask in the fall from the first floor and died of smoke inhalation. Here's then Mayor Norm Rice.
0: Tragedy should remind every Seattle resident of the enormous risks and terrible sacrifices that our firefighters make every day as they protect this community.
1: Thousands would gather outside, Along the city streets, it was as if time stood still as they watched the funeral procession. Inside the church, the funerals of the fallen firefighters was televised. there wasn't a dry eye in the house. A huge screen plays the images of the firefighters with their families and as children. The emotion, especially for a community known for its stoicism under pressure and grit and sacrifice. The loss is staggering, as the final bells are tolled for the fallen.
0: Tradition in the fire service to sound the bell for our fallen brother. This is symbolic of the last alarm. Lieutenant Walter D. Kilgore <coughs> Lieutenant Gary A. Shoemaker Firefighter Randy R. Terlick Firefighter James T. Brown.
1: We'll be back after a quick break four beloved firefighters who had paid the ultimate price for their bravery. On the face of it, the grief seemed insurmountable. But when the details of the fire began to trickle out, that the inferno was born from an arson plot, the pain and anger was visceral. In local news coverage in the days after the fire, Mary and Harry Pang were devastated by the fire and the loss of life of the four Seattle firefighters. They are totally unaware that their son, Martin Pang, is a primary suspect. A week after the fire, investigators ask Risa to wear a wire. They want her to call her ex and get him to admit that he was responsible. The first call, Martin tries to play it cool, saying he was just joking about his plans to burn down his parents' warehouse for the insurance money. The second conversation, he said even less and by the third, he wanted to cut all ties with Risa. By then, Martin Pang had been placed under police surveillance. They were keeping a watchful eye over him as they gathered evidence to support an arrest charge. Despite being shadowed by police, Martin Pang boarded an Amtrak train from Seattle to California on January 17th. By the time investigators had enough evidence to arrest Martin Pang in California, they realized he was in the wind. On February 19th, Just seven weeks after the fire, Martin flew from Los Angeles to Mexico City, where he booked a one-way ticket to Brazil and applied for a visa in his own name, an action that prompted the FBI to step in. Martin Pang was now an international fugitive. Duff Wilson and his writing partner, Eric Nalder, followed Pang to Brazil.
0: Eric even got an airline uh, reservation person to check the records for... uh, Uh, Martin Pang on a certain flight and that person confirmed that yeah he had taken that flight to Rio and then um, I jumped on a flight as soon as I could to Rio to try to uh, get him there but um, as I was like either at the airport going to the airport uh, the news came across that he was arrested in Rio so it wasn't going to be that easy to talk to him Uh, when I got there though I uh, met this guy Manuel Montoya, who's a fascinating character in this,
1: we'll get to Manuel Montoya, but for now, King five's Linda Byron would get an exclusive interview with Martin in Brazil. there, he denied any involvement in the arson
0: I heard about the four deaths of the firemen. Uh, I cried. You know, uh, I think of my family and what would have happened in, in those shoes when I finally got up the uh, the courage inside to go down and see the building. It was like saying goodbye to uh, a sibling. Mm -hmm. And I also said a prayer for the firemen and their families.
1: Martin explained that he was the victim, that he fled to Brazil because he was being falsely persecuted.
0: Well, uh, there's supposed to be no extradition from Brazil. And I figured that uh, the dust would settle, the truth would come out, Mm -hmm. and uh, then I could go back. Basically, I was running scared because uh, I was being railroaded. Still am.
1: Martin's move to Brazil was strategic. In 1995, Washington state law allowed for a first-degree murder and arson charge if a firefighter's death was a result of arson, which meant it didn't matter if the arsonist hadn't intended on killing anyone. In Brazil, that law doesn't apply. When Duff was in Brazil, he met with Martin's friend, Manuel Montoya. Remember, he was looking to find Martin Pang to interview him.
0: Manuel was a, is a music promoter, I think. And then he became an FBI informant and was like hanging out with Martin Pang in Rio for eight or nine days, just keeping tabs on him for the FBI. I didn't find right. that out until, you know, a year later or something. I just met Montoya there because I was trying to find Pang or anyone that had talked to him in, in Rio.
1: Before Martin had fled California for Brazil, he had been able to convince Montoya that he was innocent. And Montoya helped him flee to Brazil.
0: Because Montoya had met him earlier in the L.A. area. And it, it was actually help, helping, at, you know, at that time was helping to set him up in Rio. This guy that's falsely accused of something needs to go to Rio for a while, get out of the United States. You know, so he was introducing him to people. And I, th- I think he even helped to, you know, arrange an apartment for him.
1: Montoya realized he'd been played for a fool by Martin Pang after he watched a segment on America's Most Wanted and learned the truth about the deaths of the firefighters. Montoya immediately called the FBI and became a confidential informant. The FBI sent Montoya to Brazil explicitly to keep track of Martin Pang as they worked out how to get an extradition order to bring him back to the United States. At one point, they were so desperate that they even discussed kidnapping Martin and bringing him to Uruguay, which had different extradition laws. In the end, the FBI didn't want to take any chances. They knew how slippery Martin Pang had proved to be. And even if they didn't have an extradition plan in place, they wanted him in custody. So they shared with Brazilian authorities where Martin Pang was, and he was arrested on March 15, 1995. Legal battles to get Martin back to the United States would take more than a year. Essentially, the prosecutor's hands were tied. Brazil wouldn't hand him over unless they were guaranteed that he wouldn't be charged with four counts of first-degree murder. And on February 29, 1996, Martin Pang was finally extradited back to the United States. And in a stunning turn of events, Martin Pang's attorneys would blame the fire department— Saying that the firefighters would not have died if the department had carried out a plan to prevent the arson after receiving a tip in mid-December. They said the deaths were quote, if not totally, at least in great part, the responsibility of the fire department.
0: We did a big article called 24 mistakes that that officials made with the with the arson fire. That was our seminal article after after months of investigating. But before Then Martin came around when he was being, I don't know, accused or tried and said, hey, it's those 24 mistakes. That's the reason they died. But obviously under our law, if somebody sets an arson, no matter how many mistakes uh, the firefighter might make or not, that arsonist is responsible.
1: In February 1998, Martin Pang pleaded guilty to four counts of manslaughter and was sentenced to 35 years in prison. As a result of the Pang warehouse fire, Protocols would change so that firefighters are made aware of any arson threats before they get to the scene.
0: It's a standard in journalism. When there's a disaster, what went wrong, what mistakes were made, you know, did anybody, you know, have a chance to do uh, better? It's a standard investigative angle and uh, in almost all, you know, disasters. So, yeah. so that's what we did here with, with a lot of shoe leather reporting, basically.
1: In 1999, a jury would award $5.6 million in damages from the city of Seattle to the widow of James Brown. The families of the other three firefighters killed would also settle claims ranging from $450,000 to $3.5 million. Jurors would assign 75% of the blame in the firefighters' deaths to the Seattle Fire Department, and Pang was deemed 25% responsible. Martin Pang's ex-wife, Risa, and Manuel Montoya would share the $36,000 reward after Martin Pang's arrest and conviction. Martin's parents passed away while he was in prison, Harry in 2004, and Mary in 2009. Intellectually, they understood that their son had committed this horrible crime, but they could never accept it, not truly. Apparently, Martin would write a letter to his mother after he was incarcerated. It was very short. He just wanted to let her know that she needed to leave him enough money in her will so that he could buy a sailboat and travel around the world doing good deeds for people. It isn't clear if Martin Pang felt remorse for what he'd done. But what we know for sure is that he was a model prisoner. That is until 2013, when he started tasting his upcoming release. He had a new scheme to create an opulent lifestyle for himself by committing identity fraud. I spoke with Seattle Police Detective Todd Jacobson, Who played a key role in that investigation? Martin Pang and his accomplice planned to set up credit accounts in the names of the firefighters, police officers, and witnesses involved in Martin Pang's 1995 conviction. His plan was to funnel money from those accounts into an offshore bank account. Martin Pang knew that, with good behavior, he'd get out in 2018, and he had planned to take his nest egg back to Brazil. What Martin wasn't counting on was a three-month undercover investigation that thwarted those plans. However, the fraud scheme didn't add much time to his sentence. Martin Pang was released from prison in September of 2018. He was 63 years old and had served a total of 23 years. He had only lost 76 days of good time credit and some other privileges in prison after the fraud scheme. And when Pang was released, he was free. He wasn't paroled because at the time of his crime, there was no allowance for community supervision. For this episode of the Murder Chronicles, helpful resources were the Northwest Asian Weekly, the Seattle Times, King 5 News, and Cairo 7 TV. If you're interested in learning more about this episode, listen to our bonus content up next. Here, my producer Brandon Morgan and I discuss the case in more detail. And if you want to support the show, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. And if you have time, write a review. It really helps. And as always, thanks for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a Pie in the Sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening.